0: Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's Bible study is an introduction into the book of Isaiah, Lesson 1. All right, I think we're ready to start. We're going to be studying the book of Isaiah. So if you would like to turn there, it's on page 985 in my Bible. Not that that'll help you at all. 9, Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to be going through chapter 1. Isaiah has 66 chapters, so... um, we're not going to be tracking as slow as we do on Sunday mornings. If we take 66 chapters, as long as we've taken, uh, what are we, 13 chapters in Luke, we will, none of us will live <laughs> to see the end of it. So we're going we're to be moving fast uh, to this morning, not so fast, this evening, I'm sorry, not so fast, because we're going to be spending most of our time in an introduction, uh, because we need to know who Isaiah was, we need to know why he wrote and when he wrote and what it was about and all that kind of stuff. I appreciate you coming tonight. We're going to be having, I think this coming Sunday night, fellowship-wise, we're going to be having fried, local local caught fried fish. So just to give you a, just to give you a, yeah, Susan, you're, that's your favorite thing. Yeah, don't miss, you don't want to miss that. So we're going to be doing that this coming Sunday night and, of course, progressing on, probably covering anywhere from six to eight chapters a night. So even, but even still, we will not get through in seven studies together. We will not get through all 66 uh, chapter, so probably it'll be a part two in the in the spring in Isaiah, uh, but burning through a lot of information, you're going to have to listen really fast, we're going to be looking at it a lot of things, there's a lot to be covered here, and we want to make sure that we get a lot of it in, not going to be able to do as, like I said, as detailed as we normally do on Sunday mornings, but we do have more time, and I'm just holding out for the to see who's faithful to the Cowboys, because then I know <laughs> if I would go past 7.30, they'll get up and leave, so we, Tom's going to leave, Kim's going to leave anybody else (laughs) you got there what you're gonna lose anyway right don't go all right we'll 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 leave that to we'll leave that up to god for sure so isaiah chapter one we're going to be there in just a second but let's uh let's begin with a word of prayer together god we thank you that we can gather together thank you for this church thank you for this this building which isn't the church per se but it is the place where your church your people gather together and we just submit this time to you we ask God, that you would bless it. We ask, God, that you would draw us closer to yourself. Help us to better understand you so that we can better understand ourselves and the time that we live in. We thank you for Isaiah, a man who lived uh, centuries and centuries ago, but who was faithful to you and faithful to listen to your Holy Spirit as he wrote the things and, and preached the things that, that he wrote. God, we thank you for him. Uh, we pray, God, that you would open our hearts and open our ears to understand your truth and lead us in to what the real truth is thank you god we pray your blessings over this time over these next uh this included this these seven sundays nights as we come together uh to study your word probably we pray that uh, your name would be exalted in this place we ask these things in jesus name amen so isaiah chapter one we're going to be getting to the first verses here in just a bit but like i said we need to do introduction. When you get to the book of Isaiah, of course, the Old Testament largely was written, written in two different languages, actually, the Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, Aramaic, you're only going to find the book of Daniel, and Nehemiah, and uh, even part of the book of Daniel is also written in Hebrew. The majority of your book, Old Testament was written in a, in a language called Hebrew. Hebrew is not English, in case you don't know. Uh, it is far closer to Chinese than it is to English. It's written from right to left. It's written from back to front, as far as the books are concerned. Uh, the letters are highly symbolic. They're not necessarily they're shaped to they're shaped to convey a, a, a symbol, uh, sort of like hieroglyphs. In fact, the original Hebrew was very much hieroglyphic because the original languages were, were largely hieroglyphic, uh, not necessarily letters. So Hebrew is a very, very ancient language. Uh, the, what you find containing the book of Isaiah is sort of a concert, sort a of comparative between what we would find in the book of Luke, which is a Greek book or Luke and Acts, books written in Greek, in the New Testament, very, very sophisticated Greek, very sophisticated Hebrew. In the book of Isaiah, very educated. Luke's Greek is extremely intellectual. If you've never studied, and not that you need to be a a scholar in the Greek in order to understand the Bible, but if you ever take classes like I, like I've taken in Greek, you'll find out Luke is a guy who is very educated. He uses words that no one else uses. For seemingly no reason, only to confuse the Greek students, I really, I really am convinced because man is his stuff tough. Luke also writes more than any other writer in the New Testament. Paul writes what, ten books in the New Testament, but Luke, as far as actual words, Luke writes more than even Paul does. Right, more writes more than John does, even though he only writes two books. There's a lot more verbiage. So, same is true with Isaiah. Isaiah, when when you look at Isaiah, you're looking at the pinnacle of uh, effectively of uh, uh, of, of the Hebrew language, uh, he's well educated. Many believe he was a part of the royal family. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, every category of Hebrew rhetoric is used in his book. It's sort of the high ground of Hebrew, like Greek. Like uh, uh, Luke is the high ground of Greek that we find uh, in the New Testament. Very large. Luke writes the majority of, or the biggest part of, of the New Testament. Isaiah writes the biggest part. He, he his is the longest prophecy in the Old Testament. The Isaiah Scroll. When you travel with us to Israel, which some of you, some of you are going to get to do that, you're going to get to see the Isaiah Scroll, among other things. The, the Qumran community, which was the Dead Sea community, was discovered in 1948. Uh, they discovered these very ancient Dead Sea scrolls. They were scrolls of the books of the Bible uh, that, pre, in many cases, predated Christ as much as 200 years. The Isaiah Scroll has been dated anywhere from 120 to 200 years older then Jesus would have walked the earth. This scroll, very interestingly enough, we, we find a lot about how they did things back then. First of all, it was in a scroll. It wasn't in a book form. They didn't have a bound with pages is something that didn't happen for probably 400 years after Christ. But but prior to Christ and the time of Christ, everything was written in scrolls, not just Hebrew, but everything else. Uh, so they would write the entire book in a single scroll, and so you couldn't thumb through it. You would have to scroll through it. Just We kind of, We're kind of back to that now. How do you go up and down on your screen on your phone? You scroll up, you scroll down. Well, that's the way they did it. They would scroll across. So as an example, when how big the scroll is, the Isaiah scroll is 24 feet long, as they discovered there in the Qumran community in the Dead Sea. So 24 feet. So Jesus goes to visit his hometown, his home synagogue. He uh, speaks to the synagogue there using Isaiah 61 as a text. He has to scroll through 21 feet of the Isaiah scroll to get to his text. So not just give you kind of a feel of the way that they would do things. That was very interesting that he would have to scroll through that much in order to get to the place where he needed to be. Uh, There is some controversy surrounding Isaiah. How many of you have heard of the controversy? See, why am I bringing this up? Because you may hear it someday, so I'm going to head you off at the pass. Everywhere you go in the Bible, there's controversy. And the, the contradiction here's what I found. I've studied the Bible for a very long time, been under a lot of it with a very good scholarship. Uh, the contradictions that I've found is usually only between our ears, not actually in the scriptures. So, is there contradictions? Yes, between your ears. Uh, the contradiction is the problem of our either intellectual inability to understand what really is being communicated, or inability to understand the culture or inability to understand the language. The actual contradictions don't exist. I've not come across one that can actually be proven, one, not the least of which is the book of Isaiah. The contradiction, or I should say the controversy surrounding Isaiah came as a result of the how, or how Isaiah is organized. So 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. How many books in your Bible? 66. How many in the Old Testament? 39. I'll help you with that. How many in the New Testament? 27. Isaiah is divided exactly like that. 66 chapters, 39 chapters, the, the first half, if you will. Uh, 27 chapters, the last half. It's interesting, maybe coincidental, I don't know. Uh, but, but the problem is, is that there seems to be a break at the 39th chapter. So if you read along, especially uh, if you read carefully, you'll read along, you'll find out the first 39 chapters in Isaiah are kind of dark. Kind of foreboding, God pronouncing curses and God talking about how people have disobeyed Him and not listened to His commands and all these things. You got 39 chapters of that, and then all of a sudden, boom! In the 20, in the in the 40th chapter, the next, the, the following 27 chapters, it becomes much lighter, uh, much more grace-filled, much more merciful, much, much more, uh, much different, and uh, some have taken that opportunity to say it was two Isaiahs. that there was Isaiah one. And in Isaiah 2, again, what are they looking for? They're just looking for a reason to discredit the Scriptures. So, since there was a change in the middle, then it must have been something different. Well, first of all, they demonstrate their ignorance of a lot of things when they do that, but not the least of which they demonstrate their, their, who they're listening to. So you come up with the contradictions and problems with the Scripture, I can tell you who's talking in your ear. We talked about it this morning. He's called the devil. The devil is out to contradict and cause problem with the Scriptures. Never doubt it. Never, ever doubt it. So Isaiah is kind of like a mini Bible. 66 books, broke up in 39 to begin with, 27 in uh, the following. Satan is though actively pursuing or seeming contradictions in the Scriptures. Never doubt that. Uh, it, it's a clear fact. I mean, it, let's, let's go and look. We're in Isaiah, but I've, I've told you to go there, but actually don't go there. Go to, go to Genesis. We looked at it this morning. Stole thunder. But um, let's review what we learned this morning about what happened, how Satan operates. If nothing else, we'll read it, into the, read it into evidence because here we are studying the similar thing and what happened to Isaiah is happening all over the Scriptures. People are trying to find a reason to not believe the Scriptures. And the reason is, is because that's the way things are. Satan comes and tempts Eve, remember, in chapter 3 Isaiah, of Genesis, verse 1, "...now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made." And he said to the woman, indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? I mean, why did he say that? I mean, let me make it clear to you. It's not because he didn't know what God said. Trust me, Satan always knows what God says. His whole existence hangs on the truth of God. It's the fact that he knows it very well that he's able to contradict it and cause problems. So he's trying to rock her hard, and he does. He misquotes Genesis. He misquotes God's commandment, which leads to... Uh, another misquote, that's in, in, she actually does that, verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree of the garden you may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it or touch it. Why did she add? Like I said this morning, because she's already been messed up. He's already caught her. If you ever have a conversation with the devil, don't have a conversation with the devil. All right. I will submit to you, no offense. He's smarter than you. He would like you to think that you can engage him. You cannot. You cannot. You're talking about uh, an entity who has been around a very long time. You don't want to take go toe-to-toe with the devil, ch- charge hell with a water pistol. You do it under the submission of God, under the, under the complete control of the Holy Spirit, and most of the time he's going to just pull you out of there. So be very careful. Uh, you don't want to mess with him. Eve, of course, was a perfect woman. Any perfect women here? Gentlemen, this is your shot. Come on. I have. There's mine. She's perfect for me, okay? Uh, Jeff, thank you, Jeff. You get, a, you get one positive mark for all the negatives that are against you, Jeff. There you go. <laughs> no perfect women, no perfect men. So, so if a perfect woman like Eve, who had absolutely no confusion in her brain whatsoever, absolutely no temptation, absolutely no, no fallenness about her, could not go toe the toe with the devil. How are you going to do? Don't mess with him. Don't mess with him. You don't need to know what the evil is. We need to know what the evil is so we know what the good is. That's absolutely a lie. That's the temptation of the devil. Know what the good is. The evil will, evil will be very clear when you know what the good is. So, so he's, he's tempting her, and, and now she misquotes the Bible, because or the Word of God, because uh, he's already rocked her, and he's Always, we need to always be sensitive to anything that tries to make us feel like we can't rely on the scriptures. Be very sensitive with that. Is that we know exactly what the source is because he's giving away his mo here. This is the way he operates. This is his mo, and so he goes for a full denial and, of course, ultimate deception here in verses four and five. The servant said to the woman, "You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil." She already was like God. She was perfect. She had no sin, no error, nothing between her ears that wasn't right, nothing in her heart that wasn't right. That's the most a human being, other than Jesus himself, has ever been like God. It's a complete, total lie. It's utter utter baloney. But he goes for a full denial. He calls God a liar. And, like I said this morning, she bets her life on it. So does, so does Adam. Sad story. So, so we should expect, why am I saying that? We should expect that people are going to come after the Scriptures. People have come after, for a couple of centuries, the book of Isaiah. Quote, unquote, they call them higher critics. They're not higher, they're lower critics, uh, because we know what their source. Here's the way the devil operates, these are the way these guys operate. There were guys and professors in German, Germany and other places who come out and said there could be a possibility that, that Isaiah didn't write the book of Isaiah. Why, well, you got a signature from him somewhere on here? How do we know it's written by Isaiah? Because we have the, the history of the fathers, of the Jewish fathers, said so Isaiah wrote this. But not just the histories of the Jewish fathers, we also have Jesus' word on it. But, but anyway, so, so let me ask you something. So Isaiah writes over a time period of more or less 60 years. Are you the same person you were 60 years ago? Anybody here 60? I'm 55, <laughs> so I can't talk. Let's go back 30 years ago. How. How how different would you be if we had writings from you that you had written 30 years ago, as opposed to the way you would write it or the way you would think today? Would you be different? Let's just say well, this: hope you are. You've gotten better. I've been I've been a pastor now going on 30 years, and I read some of my old sermons, and I think, what an idiot! <laughs> and not that I necessarily disagree with my doctrines back then, because I had good doctrine. It just was, I just I could have done a lot better. I mean, and by God's grace, I, I am doing better. But, but I, I just think, wow, I, I, how different I, and I actually, you know, that's my writings. I mean, those are the things that I've said. I have them, you know, in digital form and everything. Uh, how, how different, well, I go back and listen to my, my own sermons from, two, we have as far back as 2007 online, my sermon. Listen to some of my sermons, I'm just thinking, God, Bill, I mean, that's not bad, but shh, you could have done better. By God's grace, I am better. We, we change, right? Some of us who were high strung have gotten a little bit more mellow. Some of us that were a little bit mellow have gotten a little bit more. Now we've become better versions of ourself over time as God has worked in our lives. Likewise, we should expect a guy like, like Isaiah to change over time. He writes like over a 60-year period. You should expect the stuff he writes early on is going to reflect something a little bit different about who he is. And in fact, that's exactly what we find out. Again, this, these guys argument that since it's different somewhere down the middle, it can't be the same. And so this just simply isn't true. Uh, we would expect that a writer would change, and actually, uh, it's quite refreshing to see that these people are real people, that the writers of the Bible are real people, that their personalities come through. They're, they're being led by the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, who they really are is, is coming out, and so it's, it's, uh, it, it's refreshing. So the, the, they call it, here's the, it, like, I'm going to introduce you to something you've never heard of. It's called the Deutero-Isaiah hypothesis. You're going to write this down because you're going to win in the next Trivial Pursuit. You have a theological, you have a big theological debate online. You're going to pop this word out, and everybody's going to be impressed. The Deutero-Isaiah <laughs> hypothesis, I'm making you learn this because they made me learn this in seminary. No, I, I'm actually going to make a broader point here. It, it, Deutero just simply means two. We have Deuteronomy means the second law, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. So it just means the second some, the second one of them. So Deutero means the second Isaiah. So two Isaiah. Hypothesis and the textual arguments we could be refute scholastically, and we could sit here and go for fifteen nights together, and we could go through each one of these arguments, and we could put them down. And you need to bring your blanket and pillow because you'd be really sleepy. I guarantee you because it's just kind of. But I can help you, not have to worry about any of that. There's there's literally shelves of libraries full of books written about the possibility that there is a second or even a third Isaiah. Very scholastic very uninformed, I should say, with the rest of Scripture, because if we actually look at Scripture, we're going to find out that there's a gigantic shortcut to refuting this whole argument. The argument just simply is, there's no such thing as a Deuteronomy Isaiah, because the Bible actually refutes the whole position before there ever was any kind of argument that there could have been a second Isaiah. I want to show it to you. Again, if there's a problem with the Scriptures, you can be sure the Scriptures themselves— we will them, so we'll help themselves out. So, so watch, let's go, go, now we were in Isaiah, we're in Genesis, now let's go all the way to the book of John, chapter 12. John chapter 12, and uh, down in verse 37, we're going to start there. So there's going to be a quote here in John 12 be two different quotes out of the book of Isaiah. Now, like I said, they, the, the, the Deutero-Isaiah group who said there had to be two Isaiahs, first of all, who cares, number one. Number two, why, what makes you ever think that you can sit here now 19 centuries later and decide who, who didn't or who, who wrote the book of Isaiah? You simply can't do that. There's a whole lot of pride and arrogance involved in that. But, but, but number three, these guys, even though seemingly scholastic, seemingly well-informed and well-educated and have all kinds of letters after their name, had not read the New Testament, seems to be. Here's how we know that. Watch watch what happens here. Watch how the New Testament flushes out any argument against, in this case, the, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 12, verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs, this is, of course, right in the middle of a story of Jesus. Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing him. That the word of Isaiah, here we are quoting Isaiah. Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. The word of Isaiah might be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, who has believed a report? And whom has the arm of the Lord revealed? That's quoting out of Isaiah 53. That's the second Isaiah if you're going to believe the hypothesis. For this cause they could not believe, for Isaiah said, here's quoting out of the first Isaiah, Isaiah 6, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I will heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke about. Notice, Notice the writer of the New Testament quotes from what these scholars say is the first Isaiah and from what these scholars say is the second Isaiah. And notice who they assign the responsibilities who made, that, who made that quote? Isaiah. There it is. 200 years of quote unquote scholarship and libraries full of books to try to talk about the possibility or why there couldn't be or why there is two Isaiahs. And the answer has been laying in your testament the whole time. The same Isaiah wrote both of those. So I brought up that whole argument so that you wouldn't have to ever worry about it again. <laughs> Somebody brings up the dude or Isaiah and said, yeah, I heard that before. Don't bring it up. I made me sleepy. So, key discovery of the Bible, here's the reason why I'm saying this. The key discovery of the Bible is its interdependency. The Bible is an integrated message system. They're not separate books that have been glued together and stuck together. Actually, there is one mind. The more you study, you're going to see there's only one mind behind this entire thing is as if there is a single author, even though we have an Isaiah and a Jeremiah and an Ezekiel and a Daniel and all these guys who are the penning these things, but there is a single mind overshadowing all these things. That's exactly the position that the Bible speaks of itself. It says that these guys, these prophets, were led along as the Holy Spirit directed them, and they wrote. It was their personality. It was their pen. It was their language, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, whatever it was, but it was God overseeing the construction of your Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. The discovery we're going to make as we study the Scriptures and the farther we go into the Scriptures, the the interdependency of the Scriptures, when the Bible raises an issue or a question, it answers its own issues. It answers its own questions. It's not left up for us. So we come to it, like for example, we come to a book of Isaiah and it looks like two different guys are writing this because it seems that the moods are different. Well, first of all, your moods change over 60 years, so, so did his. But secondly, can't God do one thing and then turn around and do another thing? Can't God inspire however he wants to? Why, why even bring up this kind of problem? The Bible doesn't leave itself open to private interpretation. It tells us that in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. Not up for, it's not subject to private interpretation. The people that think that it is are either A, dumb, or B, deviant. And that's just the, there's, there's, not, there's not another option. They either don't know what they're talking about, or they really do know what they're talking about, and they're up to no good. And that's these guys, this Deutero-Isaiah mess. The Bible is built anticipating that someone outside of it would try to eliminate its message. In the old days, when you sent a message, let's say uh, 300 years ago, before there was any kind of anything other than handwritten notes... Uh, you would send it by three or four different messengers because the possibility that someone would catch one of the messengers and change the message. And so you would keep a message with yourself. You would write a message and send it with three different messengers down three different channels so that the chance that it, one of those would bring the correct message to whoever the destination was supposed to be, that's the way you, you, you kept them from messing, if you will, with your message. Today, we send out messages via electronically, right, digitally. How do, we, how do we keep that from being jammed, being messed with? The way you do it is you spread, if, especially if it's, if it's a very important message, you spread it over the entire bandwidth of the opportunity, whatever you have, the channel that you have. You don't send it down one, one channel because it's, all you've got to do is stop that one channel and then boom, message over. It's interesting, even though the Bible was written way before there was any kind of digital or any kind of electronic, the Bible is designed the same way from a macro standpoint. Its messages are spread over its entire bandwidth. What do I mean by that? Tell me where the chapter in the Bible on baptism is. Can you tell me? Where's the chapter in the Bible? Where's the book in the Bible on faith? Can you tell me? I mean, there's places you would go, right? But is there any specific book? Any specific chapter? Where's the chapter on the Trinity, on salvation, on the deity of Christ, on the forgiveness of sins, on the Antichrist, on the apostasy, on prayer, etc., etc.? Where are the chapters or the books on this? The message of all these things, these classic doctrines of Scripture, are spread across the entire bandwidth of Scripture, anticipating hostile jamming. Very interesting. You don't find this in any other book. You don't find this in any other system. You find it in no other religion. There are chapters in Muslim Quran or in the Mormon, uh, the Book of Mormon. There are chapters on salvation. All you got to do is tear that chapter out and you lose their entire doctrine. There is not, you rip a page out of the Bible, what happens? Nothing. Nothing. You, you lose, I mean, it's like, you, you lose resolution, but you don't lose the picture. The Bible was prepared how how did all these guys 66 writers get colluded together to perform this kind of thing they didn't there was a mind over them that mind is God so foreseeing like I said hostile jamming here's how the Bible is organized Isaiah actually gives us a, a picture of that Isaiah 28 verse 10 for he says order on order order on order Line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. That's exactly the way the doctrines of the Scripture are organized, scattered all over it, like puzzle pieces. How do you know what the Bible teaches about a certain doctrine? You've got to read all the whole Bible. Now, there are specific places we can send you. One of the, I can send you places about salvation, places about faith, places about prayer. But if you lost those places, would you lose the doctrine of prayer? Absolutely not. You lose the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith? Absolutely not. Tear a page out of the Bible, what do you lose? You lose resolution, but you don't lose the picture. Very wisely organized, and you can't lay that at the feet of a guy as smart as he is, like Isaiah. There had to be a supernatural bind over the top of this, and in fact, that's what we find. We refer to Isaiah as the major prophet. Do you know why? You ever heard it said that? We have major and minor prophets. Why do we do that? Some we like, and some we don't like as much, right? Is that what it is? Why do we call it major? Do you know? They wrote more. It's just that simple. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel uh, wrote more than anybody else. We call those the major prophets, not because what they said is any more reliable, any more inspired. They just wrote more verbiage. So we saw those are the majors, and the minors just as inspired, just as necessary, just just as given to us by God as any other. Uh, But because they wrote less, we refer just just as dependable. Because they wrote last, we call them minor. It's not a matter of their importance. It's just a matter of how much verbiage they wrote. Isaiah, as we see here, now we're ready to go back to the book. Isaiah, it tells us here in the first chapter, the first verse, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz. Now, it's not Amos. It's a very different spelling. Even sounds very similar to Amos in the English, but it's a very different spelling in the Hebrew. "...the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw..." Same kind of language you find in Revelation. Every time John says something, the thing that I saw, I saw this, I saw that. Notice, we, we would think that Isaiah heard these things. That's not what he says. He says he saw them. Just important delineation. "...which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah." By the way, their, their administration spanned almost 100 years. So how is it possible this guy to be a prophet for 100 years when he probably only lived about 80 years? Well, it's not because his, 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 administ- his, his ministry spans all of these administrations, but just not all of them. We find out his, his ministry starts at the death of Uzziah, so it's really not much of Uzziah that, we, that he's actually a part of it. But it's interesting uh, not we don't know this because, through the scriptures. We know this from the, the teachings of, of the uh, Hebrew fathers uh, that uh, he was related, he was a descendant of David. So he's a very unique prophet. Most of the prophets were from outside of, if you will, the royal, royal line. They were from outside of the influential line. A- Amos, for instance, you want to talk about one that the actual Amos, who wrote the book of Amos, uh, he's just a shepherd. He's just a guy living in a field out there south of Bethlehem, and God calls him into a ministry, and he'd tell, he'd tell, he tells you, "I was a fruit picker and a shepherd prior to this. He, had, he was not from influential at all. Most of these prophets are that way. Isaiah is unique. Isaiah, by all, most scholarship agree. He was of the line of David. So David had a lot of children, and they had a lot of children. And so he's of the blood lineage of, of uh, David. He would have been a cousin to King Uzziah, which is his, his um, ministry starts at the death of Uzziah. And there's some traditions that also uh, we also know by the traditions of the fathers. We also know Isaiah uh, uh, was killed by one of his cousins, King Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. Notice his, his ministry ends with Hezekiah. King Manasseh, the last 15 years of his life, Hezekiah has a son. In fact, if you remember the story of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, God comes actually, sends Isaiah to Hezekiah and says, you know, get your house in order because the illness that you have, you will not recover from. You remember that in the scriptures. We're going to see that in Isaiah, actually. You're not going to recover from this illness. Get your house in order. And so Isaiah, I'm sorry, Hezekiah turns toward the wall, it says, and prays and says, God, remember how good I was. Remember how faithful I was. And God tells, before Isaiah is able to leave the courtyard, he tells Isaiah to turn around and come back in and tell Hezekiah, I'm going to extend your life 15 years because because God can do that. What you don't know, or maybe you don't realize, is that in those 15 years, he fathers a son named Manasseh. See, I wish he'd have gone ahead and died because Manasseh turns out to be the worst king of the southern kingdom. Manasseh kills Isaiah by sawing him in half, you recall in the book of Hebrews, it says those who had faith and they died, some were tortured, others were done this, and some were sawn in half, book of Hebrews, you remember that? So we won't turn there, that's Isaiah, that's his story. So he serves the Lord 80 years, or 70, 60 years, or whatever, he's 80 years old, and then only to have one of his cousins uh, treat him like that, so sad, anyway. They played rough back then, they really did. So let's let's get into the to to the verses here. Like I said, Isaiah's uh, ministry spans over four different, five different kings, four different kings, and uh, but yet his he wasn't covering all of them. He would cover the last part of Uzziah, all of Jotham, all of Ahaz, all of Hezekiah. Dies not not long after Hezekiah uh, passes away. So, so uh, verse 1, and notice also it says there that his, he was concerning, his prophecies concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, uh, you may not know this. Again, what are we doing? We're studying the Bible, and part of studying the Bible, you need to know the context. The context is, if, if you'll recall, after David is, first of all, uh, Saul is king, and then David is king over 12 tribes, and then Solomon, David's son, becomes king, and because of his disobedience to God, because he, he married like 300 women, that's pretty bad, but he actually falls into, it wasn't for that reason, it was because he fell into idolatry, that God tears the kingdom away from him, not from him, but from his son. He, he prophesies that that would be true. So 10 of the 12 tribes were torn away from the son of, uh, of Solomon, and the, the, the line of David is only left with two tribes, the, the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah. The, we call them the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom... Uh, went to seed pretty fast. They had had almost zero good kings, almost zero anything, and they get deported some 150 years before the southern kingdom does. The southern kingdom has better, not the best kings, and a couple of them, Hezekiah is one of them, who's pretty close to his uh, ancestor David as far as the, their attitude and the way they perform and their faith towards God. But, uh, so they last a lot longer, but the focus of Isaiah is on the southern kingdom. Uh, They called them collectively the tribe of Judah, even though there were multiple tribes. All 12 tribes were represented in the southern kingdom. They called them the the area of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, which which is, of course, the holy city to this day. Uh, The reason why we call Jews Jews is because they came to be known as Judah. So whether they're of the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Ashtar, Asher or the tribe of of Gath or whatever, we all call them Jews because eventually they all became known as just this one southern tribe. The northern tribes, like I said, went to seed very early, fell apart, were deported by the Assyrians. In fact, they were being deported by the Assyrians as Isaiah is writing his prophecies here in the book of Isaiah. So Judah becomes prominent. Isaiah writes, even though Assyria is coming onto the scene, he writes almost nothing about Assyria, even though Assyria is the dominant kingdom of the time. Uh, he writes mainly about Babylon. Babylon was nothing more, the entire life of of Isaiah, nothing more than a colony on the Euphrates River. So it's almost bizarre that he, why why is he writing about, he'd be writing this and submitting it to the kings and submitting to the people of Israel, like Babylon? What is Babylon? Nobody even knew what Babylon was. Well, God did. So, and Isaiah is a prophet, he's writing prophetically about something that's happening in the future. He writes about the Babylonians, he writes about the dominance of the Babylonians, over 100 years before they ever come into any kind of prominence. He not only writes about the Babylonians, which is the next uh, kingdom after the Syrians, he also writes about the following kingdom, which is the kingdom of the Persians. It's almost 200 years before the Persians ever arrive on the scene. In fact, not only does he write about the Persians, he also writes about and names by name their most prominent king, King Cyrus. In fact, this is a matter of history. The Jews, they have been in exile for more than 70 years. They took the book of Isaiah, the scroll, I shouldn't say, not the book. The scroll of Isaiah, opened it up to the passage, we'll see it, where Isaiah prophesies that a kingdom called Persia was going to rise to the position of power in the world and that Cyrus was going to be the main king. They took it to Cyrus. They showed it to him. He was so moved by the experience, he told all the Jews they could go back to the promised land. That's how they got to go back. Just like that. Isaiah is the guy. Who does this how does he accomplish this because he's being led by the spirit of God and the spirit of God is using him to do all these things and so it's amazing very much an amazing story so Isaiah's powerful book verses 2 and 3 listen O heavens hear, O earth for the Lord speaks sons I have reared up brought up they have revolted against me and ox knows his owner, doesn't he a donkey is master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Do your animals know you? You got animals? Giacomo, do you have your little sweeties? Your little animals? They can hear you when you drive up in, in the, I guarantee you, though, if I walk in your house, that they that I'm an awesome person. But they may not like me. Because why? Because they don't belong to me. They're his dogs. You know, it's interesting, anybody here have, have dogs? They, they see you, they can hear you, they know your voice. These are, we call them, unintelligent creatures as far as our intelligence is concerned. Unintelligent, uneducated, they don't speak. They don't have the kind of communication skills that we have, and yet they have enough sense to know who they belong to and who they don't belong to. They have enough sense to know who the good people are, and who the bad people are. We had a dog when we lived in the former church. We had a dog that was just as docile as he could possibly be. His name was Jake. Jake would lay across the door of the church. When you went out after church on Sunday, you had to step over Jake. We lived across the street. Jake was, he, that was just his job. Jake wouldn't mess with anybody. He wouldn't hurt with anybody. We were getting rid of a piece of furniture, brought, drug it out to the road. And one of the notorious guys that lived in the community went by the, went by the uh, street named Charlie Brown. He was a big drug dealer. Came over to get it because we were put, you know, we put it out on the street. If you want it, come and get it. You can fix it if you want to. Charlie Brown came into our yard. I wasn't there. Valerie can tell you the story. But she had to get between Jake and Charlie Brown because Jake knew this is a bad guy. This is his yard. Bad guys don't come in my yard. He didn't mess with anybody. But when he saw Charlie Brown, it's amazing how animals know stuff. Why? How, how is that? Because God gave them this ability. Animals are faithful to us. Uh, another dog story. You ready? I I was growing up with, when I was growing up, we lived in the woods. And I had a hunting dog named Jake. I'm sorry, named Rattler. And Rattler was a black and tan hound. He was a coon dog. He was whatever you wanted to hunt, he wanted to hunt it. Rattler knew what a gun looked like. He knew what gun oil looked like. You could walk outside any day of the week. It didn't matter. He he would not even look at you, just laying out there on the ground, just this old, sorry-looking hound dog. But I guarantee you, you came out the back door with a shotgun or a rifle in your hand, he came into his own. So what we found out is if you wanted to go out and hunt by yourself, wanted to do some kind of still hunting, wanted to sit on a deer stand or something like that, and you wanted it quiet, you didn't want a dog running around, running everything off, you had to lock Rattler up because, man, he wanted to go. So one time my brother and I, we were going out, we lived in the woods, we were going out deer hunting, and we told my dad, please lock Rattler up inside the garage, probably at least an hour, and we're going to leave and go off in the woods and we're going to hunt. We've been gone an hour and a half I was out in the woods, sneaking up on a deer. Here comes Rattler. I know you missed me. He had this kind of look on his face. I know you missed me, but here I am. He goes off and chases the deer off. He just, just ruins the whole, the whole hunt. My dad said, he said, I gave him an hour and a half. He said, I opened the garage door. He went around the house one time, picked up your scent, and took off in the direction that you boys went. That, he, he just thought, we can't live with, you can't live without me. I, I, I need to be with you. Everywhere you go, he was a great dog. But like I said, you had to lock him up if you were going to go hunting. Uh, that, that's the way animals are. It's not just dogs. Uh, cats can be like that. Like the, demonstra- the, the animals he named here, donkeys, can be like that. Uh, uh, it's interesting how our animals, even though we consider them much lesser intelligent than we are, know who their owners are. But we as people don't know who created us. Very sad commentary. We put so much credit on what's running around between our ears, and apparently there's not enough. Because my dog knows who I am. But I have to be told who my creator is? How sad is that? How, how messed up are we? When, when, when we call, they listen. When God calls, do we listen? Does he have our undivided attention? My dog, Your dog will do anything for you. Die for you, God. Do we follow him, honor him the same way? Our pets really put us to shame. They really do. It's Isaiah. That's the way he's describing it. What a a great description. Verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who, who act corruptly. Wow, what a description. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Notice that it's one, of the, one of the incredible things is that of, of us, we're God's creation, right? We have the capacity to cause God sadness, anger. You know, he can put a stop to that. You know how? Just stop loving us. Just stop loving us. How many of you have kids? How many of you have kids that broke your heart? Yeah, if you got them, that's, that's what kids do. Like, I'm going to break their heart. It's interesting. You love them, though, don't you? Yeah. Love them. It's, sometimes it's real hard. You want to love them straight into the grave sometimes, wring their necks. <laughs> but, but still, it, it's interesting that, that God has the same feelings for us. He loves us. So all you got to do is stop loving us. I, I, can, I can solve your problems with your kids. Stop loving them. You'll never have another worry. It'll never bother you ever again. How are you going to do that? There's not a way. It's in your heart, right? It's, 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 who, it's who we are, and it's who God is. Disobedience is, is one thing. It's one thing to deal with that, but it's another thing in this case to deal with kids who, how do you, how do you deal with, a, it's one thing to deal with a disobedient child. How do you deal with an ungrateful child? Anybody have any recipes for that? You just hurt. That's all you can do one thing you disobey okay here were the rules you broke the rules here the consequences but what about ingratitude that's that's what god's dealing with here like i said it's a simple solution just stop loving him and he would fix all that of course god's not going to do that verse five through eight where will you be stricken again so you've been punished in every possible way you could possibly be as you continue in your rebellion your whole head is sick the whole heart is faint from the sole of your foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound, and it only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened, there's nothing. There's nothing sound about you because of all the bad decisions that you've made. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your, your fields, are strange, strangers are devouring them in your presence, and it is a desolation as, over, as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard. Like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. What a sad, sad pronouncement. The daughter of Zion, Jerusalem. You know, it's a very interesting city. We talked about this this past uh, spring. Uh, the city of Jerusalem besieged no less than 40 times, uh, destroyed 32 times. What a city. Since 1948, four different wars have been fought in the city of Jerusalem. I mean, it's, it's back on the map. We're talking about Old Testament stuff, right? Well, it's back on the map, and it's gonna stay on the map for sure. Verse 9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, here's Israel speaking about themselves. We would have been like Sodom. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Completely obliterated. Go to Israel with us. I'll show you where it was. There is still, it says it was they were burned with Sodom, with Sodom. Burning sulfur, there are still chunks of sulfur stuck in the ground there. And you can literally pull it out of the ground and light it with a match. You know what sulfur is? It's the little white tip on the, on the strike everywhere match. Burns super hot. There's still chunks of sulfur stuck in the ground over there in the area where Sodom and to me it's just Today, it's just a big mining pit. Uh, but nothing left there because God completely destroyed them. If God had not left us a remnant, he said, we would have been just like them. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Who's he talking about? They're long gone. He's calling the Judahites, the, the city of Jerusalem, he's calling them Sodom. Wow, what a pronouncement. Give ear to the instruction of the Lord, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I have had enough of your burnt offerings and your rams and the fat, fed, the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the bull, blood of bulls and lambs and of goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires you to trample in my courts? In other words... All your religious stuff means nothing to me. Without relationship, what's what is religion anyway? Nothing nothing but this for God. I don't need any of that, he says. When you appear before me, who requires you to trample my corpse? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moon and Sabbath. These are all, by the way, required of the Jews. They had no heart in it. Just going through the religion. What do you do on Sunday? We go to church. Why? I don't know. It's just what we do. Think God's impressed with that? I dare say He's not. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moon and your Sabbath are calling your assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Wow. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood, he says. If he doesn't judge, effectively, if he doesn't judge Israel, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And let me just say, Billy Graham said this, if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. To be sure, God is very much interested in relationships and not in formalities. And if what we do, religiously, leads nothing nothing to a relationship with God, I can tell you he wants nothing to do with it. Not interested at all. Interesting. He calls them Sodom here, and it's, it's a great reflection on our study we did had a couple of years ago in the book, of, the book of Revelation. Here's Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 to 8, speaking about the two witnesses. Remember those guys? They had to be standing and testifying in Jerusalem for uh, three and a half years. It says that when they had finished their testimony, the beast that came of, that's the Antichrist, out of the abyss, will take, make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. But notice, where does he get that from? Go in Isaiah. You just read it. So uh, as we said when we studied Revelation, Revelation requires a very good uh, uh, understanding of the Old Testament. For every verse in the book of Revelation, there are eight allusions to the Old Testament. I would say probably half of those allusions, four of every eight, is uh, Isaiah. Here, here we have it. Isaiah speaking these same kind of words, using these, the, 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 the Holy Spirit who inspires the book of Isaiah inspects you to know that book in order to be able to interpret correctly the book of Revelation. Here's just a, just a small example of that. So, so uh, verse, uh, verse 16 is where we are. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds. The Jews were fastidious about washing. You washed your hands before you ate. You wash your hands after you ate. You wash your body certain times of the day. You did certain things. Remember, they chastised Jesus because Jesus doesn't wash the way that You don't wash the way the elders wash. Why aren't, What kind of Jew are you? Very fastidious about washings. And so God notices coming and saying, you know, you wash yourself, but there's no water that's a remedy for their situation. Their, their problem is, is their evil heart. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead the widow. In other words, you want to be cleansed. This is the way you cleanse yourself. Do the right thing. All this religiosity, all this stuff, these, these patterns of religion, religious things that you're going through, don't impress me at all. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, one of the biggest statements in Isaiah. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent or obey, you will eat the best land. God's willing to cleanse us from our sins, willing to forgive us. Your skin sins are like scarlet; it's not a problem for God. Your life's a total wreck; it's not a problem for God. It's just the problem is, is that you have to let Him do that, which means you have to say you've, like we said this morning, you have to say you're wrong. You have to repent. No, you can't change your life. Of course, you can't change your life. That's the reason. If Jesus, if, if you could change your life, Jesus died for nothing. Jesus died because there was not another answer for us, not another remedy for us. Verse 19, if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the lamb. but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a harlot. Wow. What's he talking about there? Spiritual adultery. Running after things that are not God. Seeking fulfillment in anything that's not God. That's, they were good at that. That's... God considers that spiritual adultery. We've, we've, we're guilty of that, aren't we? It's, God deserves our complete devotion, and yet we turn aside to other things. And whether we make an idol or we have an idol in our hearts, it doesn't make any difference to God whatsoever. They're still both, in both cases, an abomination to him. Let's keep reading there. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She, has, she was full of, it, full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Nobody's getting away with anything. You know that, right? God's not missing anything. I know you're not, not exactly happy about the conditions of our world today, and I'm not either, and I'm not, I'm not saying you should be. I'm just saying, understand this. Nobody gets away with anything. God's aware of all that's going on. Your silver has become dross. Your, your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels. The, the companions of thieves. Like, it sounds like America, doesn't it? Everyone loves a bride, chases bribe, chases after... Uh, rewards they do not defend the orphan nor does the widow plead uh, plea come before them therefore the lord god of hosts the mighty one of israel declares "Ah, i will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself uh, of my foes Uh, then i will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning after you will be after that you will be called the city of righteousness a faithful city and i would to god that we were already in that day we are not there. Like I said, we, we talked about this last time. If you're if you're a betting person, go long on Jerusalem. It's going to be here. It's going to go. It's going to go through some major valleys, uh, as they say in the current market. Buy the dip. <laughs> buy in now. If she's low, and she's going to stay low for a while. But she will not forever be there. She is coming out. She will definitely will, and she will reign high. There, she will be called the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice. Her repentant ones will be right with righteousness. Like I said, I wish that was today. But transgression and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord shall come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of your oaks, which you desired, and you will be embarrassed of the gardens. This is the places where they committed idolatry. So they would, they would create these, these uh, statues out of oak or out of some kind of wood, and they would overlay it with silver or overlay it with gold. And they would set them up to be worships. And that's what he's referring to here. You'll be shamed of your gardens and your oaks and uh, whose leaves have faded away as a garden that has no water. And the strong man will become a tender. Notice this descriptive of eternal judgment. The strong man will become tender. What is tender? You know? Kindling. Yeah. Hot stuff. Stuff that burns really, you can light it with a match. It's almost like a match. The strong man will become tender. Woo! That's bad if there's fire. His work, a spark. Thus they shall burn together, and there will be no one, it will be unquenchable, it says. Woo! Tough words. Speaking of those who make idols and wood overlaid with silver and gold, like I said, and the places where they go and the things they did to worship them. We're going to stop right there. That's been... Uh, coming up on an hour, we're going to burn through a lot more chapters. We're going to be, be, be looking at some major headings. We're going to be making all the way through chapter 6 uh, the next time we're together and seeing some of the things, including the call of Isaiah uh, into ministry. Any questions? Any questions? Totally clear? Good stuff. i would be willing to bet most of the quotes you know in the Old, in the New Testament that you hear, you probably are hearing them, I mean, 90% of them are going to come out of Isaiah. Isaiah is a very popular book with New Testament writers. Because, well, because he writes so much, it would, you would think that he would have a weightier portion because he writes so much prophecy anyway. Isaiah 53 is probably the pinnacle of the Old Testament as far as, it's called the gospel of the Old Testament. And uh, wow, what a description of Christ. Uh, We know more uh, when we think about the millennial reign of Christ, of course, we always think of chapter 20 of Revelation. Actually, there's a lot more written in Isaiah about the millennial reign of Christ. Most of what we know about Jesus' reign on the earth for a thousand years, we know it from Isaiah, not from Revelation. Revelation assumes you already know all this stuff, and so it doesn't write it. So, all right, shall we pray? God, we thank you for the privilege we have to study your word We pray, God, for hearts to hear you, desire to understand you, desire, God, to grow in our faith, to be changed and made different. God, the things that you said to this man, Isaiah, are spellbinding, and we have to ask the question, God, are you saying the same thing to us? God, I pray you'd help us to hear you, not just with our ears, but with our hearts. Thank you, God. Again, we ask your blessings on our study these next seven weeks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptistchurch.org.